Dr. Stella, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I know it's quite early there on the West Coast. It's okay, it's four o'clock over here, so it's all good. Oh my gosh, I do have family that lives in the West Coast, and I'm so jealous of the weather there. I'm sick of New York and the snow. That's okay, you can come and visit us. (laughs) I know, I wish, I wish. Doc, thank you so much for being here. We've been trying this for months, and can you believe it? Like, the time is finally here. Time is just passing by. It's just right. right? I know. I mean, next thing you know, we're going to blink. It's going to be Thanksgiving, Christmas. I know, I know. I think since the pandemic started, it's like the calendar is just flying by. If you could please introduce yourself first to everyone watching. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Celsi. I'm a hospitalist here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So excited to be here today with Christian. Yes. So I started this series because having worked through the pandemic in the hospital and then the same day I would go out and there'll be people protesting like on the street saying, oh, it's a hoax, it's a hoax. And then when the vaccine came out and like there's so much misinformation going on in the world, especially in social media. In my mind, I was like, we had to bring in the actual experts to talk about this stuff. And I'm so grateful to have connected with doctors and clinicians like you, Doc. And you are one of those who really have been catapulting all this evidence-based information to everyone, which are saving lives every single day. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Well, you're doing a great job. I really (laughs) am just so impressed by all the lives and the Q&A sessions. I wish I had when I was a med student, can I just tell you, or even when I was starting out. This is such an awesome resource. Thank you so much. And... Also, a main reason why I wanted to do this is being also a student. I wanted to really introspect in the journeys of the physicians who are where they are now. And so if you could please tell us the long journey it took to get into this path of medicine. Yeah, the long journey. So of course it was four years of college, four years of medical school. Undergrad was at UC Davis. Mm -hmm. And then I did medical school at Western University in Southern California. And then I did my residency in San Francisco and St. Mary's. And then I did a year of chief residency and then now working as a hospital. And it's like, you're a Cali girl. You are I a am Cali, Cali girl. I, ne- I didn't leave California. That's a, it's true. I, know. I mean, I wouldn't too if, I, if I'm there already. I was mm-hmm. so curious if you have any inspirations to go into this path of medicine. Is there like parents, family, friends, a personal experience? Yeah, you know, my mom. My mom, I was raised by a single mom. My mom's a nurse. And we grew up, I grew up in Guam. And she mm-hmm. was, name it, she was an NICU nurse. She was a nurse in, you know, mostly in the hospital. And then at one mm-hmm. point, as they started getting older, we transitioned. She became the University of Guam's student health nurse. Wow. And so when I was about like seven, eight years old, during the summers, I would actually go to the university mm-hmm. with her at the clinic. And mm-hmm. the summer, I literally spent the summers there. While I watched administer PPD shots, vaccinations, clearance, all these people, there would be long lines of students who needed to get their clearances and they had to go through my mom. She was the only nurse. My job was to literally be typing out their health cards. So if they cleared, I would be typing out health cards. So I got to do that. So I got to see firsthand what she did as a nurse, but also the internal medicine doctor used to come Mm -hmm. in once a week to actually hold clinic. And I got to observe him firsthand at a very young age. I was seven years, eight years old. Mm -hmm. And I was mesmerized because I was like, wow, how awesome. And it was just a different vibe. Love nurses, love my mom. It was kind of that thing, but it was like when the doctor 
it was kind of a different vibe. My mom too. She's a nurse, post anesthesia recovery room nurse now. She's been a nurse for 30 years as well. And so I remember also growing up, you know, seeing her come home. She'd teach me stuff. And also now that I'm a nurse myself, mm-hmm. which is not easy. I'm like, wow, this is what you went through the, the past years. And what's great is you were getting your clinical hours dog for application since you were young, right? <laughs> You can have applied then already. (laughs) So funny. And that being said, still, it's like, of course, your childhood, seeing all this stuff, and then a decade long, more than a decade of training and education into medicine, truly a long, not so easy road. Do you have any regrets now that you've made it? Regrets in going into the path of medicine? Absolutely not. Because I knew... (laughs) I wanted to be a doctor early on, right? I was five years old, watching my mom, watching that doctor. Absolutely, this is what I wanted to be. I think the biggest regret that I had was that I didn't really take the time to enjoy the journey. I didn't take the time to really kind of just slow down. I was so obsessed with, oh my God, I had to be at the top of this. I had to get the grades of this. I had to be here, but I didn't get to enjoy it. Like that, it was like the whole process was actually, if you look back, it actually was actually fun. Crazy hard, right? So much information, studying all the time. I wish I just like kind of slowed down and said, you know what? Maybe I studied enough for this test. I should go and kind of enjoy it and go hang out and really just continue the connection and the self-care, which I didn't learn until later on. So that would be the biggest regret. That's very helpful. Uh, As I know from your post as well, you're an attending physician, obviously, Mm -hmm. and you're also a medical officer, right? Medical chief Mm -hmm. and take on the residents and teach them. Like I always say, I wish one day in the future you'll be my attending when you become a resident. (laughs) Having gone through the whole process, Are you happy with how medicine played out in the current age? I think pandemic was the biggest blinder. It took away a lot of the blinders that became very, very apparent to me. Mm -hmm. Just how much the disparities are Mm -hmm. in the community, medicine. Mm -hmm. It played out. You you see it Mm -hmm. firsthand. Mm -hmm. People don't have access. Disparities. Mm -hmm. And the fact that as you go along, you also see not only is it about race and about culture, it's Mm -hmm. also about gender too. Because being a woman in medicine, being a minority in medicine, Mm -hmm. you get to experience that firsthand. So yeah, no, it didn't actually turn out a lot of things that you kind of, the shocking reality. Yeah, I actually wanted to delve into that. I've had so many women physicians on this live so far, and each one of them has always mentioned that there is a big disparity with women in medicine. Can you actually delve more into that doc was there a time that you really experienced that wow there is some sort of inequality just because i'm a woman is pursuing this male-dominated field in the beginning you should start off looking at opportunities that were available to Mm -hmm. women i personally didn't have that experience where Mm -hmm. a lot of things that i wanted to go for i was able to go ahead and (laughs) pursue but I did have colleagues who wanted to have that promotion or who wanted that position and didn't get it. For me, my disparity has been more so just the day-to-day. For instance, if I were to go in a room with the, my residents and myself, automatically the term would be like, oh, so you're the doctor. And it may be you know, not disparaging There's... at all <laughs> to, to, to the med student, but like, because the med student was male and I happened yeah. to be attending, it would be like, oh, so you're going to do the procedure. And you're like, no. I'm going to do the procedure, right? Yeah. So it's kind of that thing. So I think that's yeah. all on the day-to-day. Yeah. I get yeah. to see that, yeah. Yeah, and I see that firsthand too. If I go into a room with a female resident, they'll automatically think that I'm the doctor and that they're mm-hmm. the nurse. It's great being a nurse, but truly there is that sense of, still I think it's a systematic and historical stereotype, right? That 
there can't really be women in medicine, given that it's a male-dominant field. But I'm so glad because I'm in a teaching hospital for work, and more than half of the resident program are women, which is great. We are seeing this new generation of empowered women who I always say that it's not that they were never capable. The society never gave them the stage or the platform to actually realize, right, what they have capable right. of. Or just the inherent biases because you kind of grew up that, right? Yeah, At yeah. some point, it depends on what you were also used mm-hmm. to. So you just have yeah. to kind of carry that on. So you'd have this expectation. You'd be like, oh, you're a woman. Must be a nurse. Must be a nurse, yes. Kinda, just kind of goes with it, yeah. I agree. And yeah. yet, despite all of this systematic and system flaws, if there's one piece of advice that you would give to a student, either a high school student, a college student, or a current med student who really wants to pursue this field of being a physician, what would be that advice? I think a lot of it is going to be believing yourself and self-confidence in yourself Mm -hmm. because there's going to be so many people. It's such a hierarchical type Mm -hmm. of society Mm -hmm. that we're in, right? Because everybody, there's a pecking order for so many things. A lot of it is you just have to trust yourself and know who you are and who you believe with, and most importantly, stand by it and be assert yourself. Because a lot of times, if you're going to let there sit there and just allow things to happen yeah. around you, and you don't say, you know what, I want a chance. Give me a chance because mm-hmm. I can do this. You might be passed by and no one will see you. So I say, stand up for what you believe in, fight for what you believe in, and definitely don't back down and, and give yourself the chance. I agree. And yeah. I am so excited also for the next generation of medicine because we have amazing mentors like mm-hmm. me. So thank you so much. It's July, mm-hmm. July 1st. Interns come in, PGY wants to become PGY2 and mm-hmm. so on. Please take me back to that time when you first answered as, oh, I am the doctor now. I, I am a resident. Can you take us to what specialty you went into? And is there a motivation behind that? Was it the internist when you were growing up? Yeah, internal medicine was definitely from the forefront, very much the, the choice beginning because of the other opportunities mm-hmm. you had, mm-hmm. right? I wanted to go into internal medicine because of the fact you had the ability to learn so many complex diseases, mm-hmm. get to also teach and educate and do and focus on prevention. Mm-hmm. But I love the fact that you had the flexibility. Mm-hmm. You could do inpatient, you could do outpatient. Mm-hmm. And then you also had the flexibility of taking on a fellowship afterwards, yeah. Yeah. which at the time I actually was going to go into pursuing mm-hmm. into going to cardiology as a fellowship. So that's the reason why, you know, internal medicine was definitely the stepping stone going into it. That's exactly what the reason why I wanted to go into internal medicine, because there's so much flexibility. Yeah. And I agree with you, Doc, with the amount of information you have to know Mm -hmm. as an internal medicine physician. I guess you basically have to know it all. One of my close friends is an internal medicine resident right now at my hospital. And I just look at his notes and during the rounds, I'm like, you have to know everything, do you? Mm -hmm. Like, you have to know everything. You got to consult. This specialty, this specialty, and it all roots back to the internal medicine doctor. And yet, despite all of those different consoles, and of course, internal medicine is the whole body, what do you think is the bread and butter of internal medicine? Is there one or two or three things that you see the most Mm -hmm. every day that when you go in today, you'll be like, I'll see this again tomorrow. And then the Yeah, there's like a top five for Mm -hmm. sure, right? Congestive heart failure, hands down. You're going to see some form of infection, pneumonia, sepsis, urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. Number three, heart attacks. Mm -hmm. 
five, definitely, depending on what you're dividing into strokes would be another one. And then your gastrointestinal bleeds. Those are your, like, right? These are your bread and butter. I would say those are your top five right there. And I agree with that because (laughs) all the time, I do work in a cardiac surgery step-down unit, but half of it is celly and regular med. And exactly those five, Five. those are like the top five. Mm -hmm. And yeah, despite those, do you still get excited when you go to work? I can yes. imagine the amount of adventure. <laughs> it is because what's so amazing about it, right? Because mm-hmm. as a hospice and in internal medicine, they're not always just coming in for one thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is that complexity of like, okay, they have pneumonia, but now they also have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And they might be in congestive heart failure. Mm-hmm. And they might even have a GI bleed, yeah. right? So you have all those things. Mm-hmm. So every day is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Everything is, is every day is something mm-hmm. new and mm-hmm. every patient is different. So it's just, it's always exciting. Yeah. yeah. And I think also the root of internal medicine is patient teaching. Yeah. We see all of, most of the top five, if not almost all are preventable with certain motivable factors, right? Whether it's diet or exercise or checking your blood pressure and getting it under control, your sugar. So patient teaching is really such a key for internal mm-hmm. medicine. So as the expert doc, what are the key ways to prevent these preventable diseases? Yeah, I think along from the most important thing as a doctor, and I definitely take mm-hmm. the time to as hospice, is when we go in that room, is to really explain what's going on with the patient, right? Because if they really don't understand what's really going on, it's hard for them to predict. And then you go talk about all the modifiable things mm-hmm. that there are possibly things that you can modify. So a lot of it is understanding Mm-hmm. what it actually is and then also you have to involve the community their families in part of that mm-hmm. because being able to for them to go home and continue whatever regimen mm-hmm. or whatever you decided to do mm-hmm. is also going to take part in what happens when mm-hmm. they leave that hospital or that clinic it's mm-hmm. going to have to be it's a whole community that has to yeah. come together to yeah. understand i feel like also a big factor of patient teaching, like you said, is the community, given that we have people from different socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. right? It's not a one-size-fits-all. Certain things that might be viable for some people, the options may not be within the financial right. reach of other people, right? And other than that, there are patients who need more teaching than others, mm-hmm. right? And how do you get to the heart of that? How do you actually really touch the heart of the person that they actually want to be? something because i feel like sometimes because they're not motivated enough but they actually want to change i think it a lot of times is when you get to know the patients i really like to dwell on their social aspect mm-hmm. whether you're going to connect with them because you're the same race or maybe because you speak their language or because they like the same sports team you have i think making that connection mm-hmm. is that huge huge mm-hmm. piece and then trying to understand their understanding of what's going on and then from there you try to explain whether or not, you know, what they believe is true or is evidence-based or what you can go ahead and augment and complement their understanding of it. I think that's the key is the, how you're able to connect and just be able to take the time to explain to them. I think that's the huge part. I actually love one of the posts that you posted a few months ago where you were like, beyond the patient is an actual human, right? There is right. a whole story behind that person. And it's great that there are physicians like you who are actually dwelling and delving into that. We always say there's no perfect system. There's no perfect nurse, no perfect doctor. 
but there are those who really connect with their patients on a really personal level. And I think that goes beyond even what type of training one person gets, right? And I wanted to go into this because you are a mm-hmm. doctor of osteopathic medicine. And right. all the doctors I've had so far trained under the allopathic medical school. Mm-hmm. So as someone who has trained through it, what is the difference, Doc, between a DO or MD? If there sure. are- Absolutely. And uh, why don't we just go back a little bit to why I even went into osteopathic medicine, right? So when I was about nine years old, I was roller skating in my neighbor's front yard and there was a hose and I literally slipped on it, landed on my back. And then honestly, I was like, from that point on, I would go through major spasms where I was really hunched back because the spasms were so bad. And then even at a young age, it became a chronic problem. I developed chronic back problems. And the most easy thing that most people do when you go to the doctor, unfortunately, at that time was, okay, here, there's some ibuprofen and some eyes and here's that and you kind of get frustrated because you're Mm -hmm. like is that it Mm -hmm. that's all i got so the rest of my life i'm just gonna be living on this ibuprofen or towel there's got to be something more and what happened was i was a junior in undergrad at east davis and i came upon my mentor my future mentor who was giving a talk about what is osteopathic mm-hmm. medicine. And basically what I learned at that conference and still holds to this day is that we're talking about the viewpoint where they feel that the whole body has the innate ability to heal itself. The interconnectedness of all our organ systems and our systems mm-hmm. in treating the patient all as a whole and a holistic mm-hmm. view, the whole mind trend that in order to heal, you have to be able to tap into all of that so that you can get the person to heal back. I agree. And then you have that. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you had the fact that they had the extra modalities. I think it was last year where they merged the residencies for DOs mm-hmm. and MDs. At the end of the day, like it says physician on, on your ID card, right? Right. And I right. actually worked in a cardiac clinic all throughout nursing school. And the head doctor, Dr. Puma, not once did I know that he was a DO um, until I started nursing right. school. I started in nursing four years later. And yet, despite all of that, all the training, with the OMM, osteopathic manipulative movement, mm-hmm. right? And all of that, this and what the OS do with the body that you learn actually in school, right? That you train for mm-hmm. in school. Do you think that it has applications to modern day medicine? Absolutely. So these osteopathic techniques are really meant to be hands-on diagnostic treatment tools that complement mm-hmm. what we're doing in modern day medicine, right? We're, we're not saying that it replaces surgery, it doesn't replace drugs, it doesn't replace diagnostics, all the scientific things that we're able to do. But mm-hmm. they are modality used. So for me, they allowed me to learn these techniques that I didn't have to rely on every single time ibuprofen and ice. Yeah. I got yeah. to do things that when my back goes out, I techniques are, you know, my husband who was going with me the entire time he was with me when I was in medical school uh-huh. and going through all the training. So you end up having to learn some of those techniques. <laughs> so in the days when my back goes out, yeah. I'm like, can you help me, you know, treat my back? Yeah. So some techniques that you learn in it, they really do work. So yeah, I do. I know a lot of doctors too, especially who are OBGYN, a lot of women who are going through labor and are mm-hmm. having like bad cramping. They're actually out there in the labor, in the living room, actually trying to do some techniques, yeah. some patients yeah. to kind of alleviate yeah. their cramping and their pain back yeah. there. So yeah. And it's always great to have other modalities other than, you know, just pharmacologic stuff. Because I believe there is such thing as fatigue when it comes to medications, right? We do have things like polypharmacy. And I mean, I've been a patient before too, and it's just kind of trying to hear the same recommendations over and over and over again. 
does help to build a relationship with the patients. And I know that you are so big on maintaining their um, connection with the patients. It brings forth a lot of memories of patients, right? Throughout all of your training, whether back in medical school or during clerkship or residency or even now as attending, do you have a most memorable experience with the patient, whether it's most scary or most funny or most embarrassing, one that really sticks out to you the most? Yeah, I did my ER rotation at the San Francisco Mm -hmm. General Hospital. And uh, there was this time where it was probably scary and also one of those really memorable experiences where uh, there was a woman who had experienced trauma where she had been stabbed because she said someone tried to break into her car when she was sleeping in it. And they were actually rustling in the car and actually duking it out. And then she had some blood stab wounds and she ended up in the ER. So I was one of the interns who was trying to help stabilize her. And then later on into the evening, so she was stabilized. She was waiting to get admitted in the room. The rooms were starting to get really crowded because it was trauma time. There's certain times in the ER, it's so funny, you can tell what's happening throughout the day because like the car accidents and when the bars close, that all kind of determines the <laughs> influx of patients okay. in the hospital. Yeah. But a couple of hours later, there was this gentleman who had some lacerations on his hands and all that. And then my attorney said, oh, there's a patient with some lacerations in bed too. Can you go take care of their, you know, lacerations? So I love suturing. So I was like, yeah. So I was like talking to this guy and he said, okay, let's suture you up. He didn't really want to talk so much. And I was like, okay, that's fine. So when he was done, I kind of said, you can sit out here in the main waiting area where there's some other patients were there. Short story is that earlier woman that I was taking care of wakes up. And she turns and she looks across the hallway. She's all, that's the guy who attacked me. And the police just happened to be there because they're still investigating. He gets up, starts to run. Police yells. There's like four of them because everybody down. So we're like now on the ground in the ER, just like basically going, oh my God, what is going on? Because we don't know if he had like yeah. any weapons, weapons on him or anything. Because yeah. I didn't, it's not one of those questions. I was like, when I'm suturing, going, oh, so you have any weapons on you? Yeah, it was not one of those. But yeah, yeah that, it was scary and it was memorable. That's like the biggest crazy story. Oh my gosh, I can't yeah. imagine. And also you're like an intern, right? It's just like your first right. time. Like, so I was like, I'm- oh I don't know. Like you're like, yeah, it's like one of my first few weeks as an intern and I was, oh my god, I don't yeah. even know. Am I gonna survive this rotation? Mm-hmm. Seriously. Yeah. That is so traumatizing. Yeah, it's, crazy. Like, it's like something that you watch from like a medical TV show, right? It's like Grace and Anatomy so type of type of episode. So oh my god. Oh, wow. But again, medicine, you always expect the unexpected, right? It, Absolutely. It, it's always And I feel like that came true when the pandemic took over the world last year. So what happened was I started orientation on my unit. Beginning of December, I ended my orientation end of January. And we started hearing news of the pandemic in China, Japan, and Italy around February and around that time. And then our floor was converted to COVID like some weeks later. So I was fresh out of the gutter. I was just getting used to my cardiac floor when when COVID came in. We were transitioning into COVID ICU right away my senior nurses who'd been working throughout different endemics were saying we have never seen anything like this and doc you have been in the hospital for a while and is it true that this is something that you have never seen anything like it before 
Absolutely. I've never been more scared, just absolutely floored. And, you know, there are days where you just kind of had to take a moment where you're just you don't even have time. You just want to actually take a corner and cry mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been there in the very beginning where I've had a patient come in and they, they call us already as hospitalists because mm-hmm. they're like, okay, there's obviously a, a patient coming in really short of breath. Mm-hmm. We're concerned about it. It's probably a patient with COVID, really low oxygen saturation. Mm-hmm. So we're already there, gowned up, ready mm-hmm. to go. We're working in parallel with the ER trying to get things going. I've never seen people so sick. I mean, we're talking, they were like their oxygen saturation. Like this, like mm-hmm. maybe 68, 70, they're just gasping for air. They look like they're drowning. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you, we go through it, it's been so devastating. You spent all that time, everybody pours in, everything they could save somebody's life. And the amount of people that you, you lose and the amount of just the way people with COVID die because of the fact that they're isolated, they, you can't let families in. The fact that they're alone, I, I'm, I don't know how we're, I, we're all trying to get through this yeah. and we're all just traumatized because it's mm-hmm. just unbelievable the amount of death the mm-hmm. amount of suffering it's unbelievable it's nothing like anything i've ever thought i would ever have been trained for i agree with all those sentiments doc even until now a year later when i still talk to some of my friends who are not in the medical field and i try to recall some things there's some things that i still don't want to say like i just want to repress it at the back of my mind mm-hmm. And I still tear up and I, there was one night where we had to bag 10 patients who died within three hours, within three hours. I remember we were doing compressions on one patient in one room, and then we would run to the next room right after. It's not a big hospital, so there's only one code team, right? And I felt for all of the internal medicine residents and all of the anesthesia residents who are seeing all of this for like the first time, even myself too. It was it was dark times. It was dark times. It's such an analogy, but I don't know if you're familiar with the Harry Potter series, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, there's like by the end, it gets so dark and there's just a time where everyone's like, you know, everyone's like battling. So everyone's just so scared. And I just yeah. felt like, oh my gosh, this is the same sentiment. I'm just scared of what's going to happen every single second. I didn't want to go to work. I was so scared because it's not just, oh, I'm going to marinate in 12 hours by the bedside watching people pass away despite trying to help them, right? But what if I bring home something to my mom who's living right. home? What, are, oh my what God, if I bring yes. something to our families, right? And I feel like that's something that the media didn't show beyond the depths, which of course we needed to amplify beyond the depths of the patient, beyond the lack of supplies in the beginning. It's the workers, the healthcare workers who were caught in the midst of the trenches. And I just wanted to ask from your perspective as an attending, as a medical officer, how did you feel for your students, for your residents who are going through Imagine what kind of training that is, right? <laughs> so I, my heart goes out to all of them. I mean, it was just like, imagine it's already a scary time because yeah. you feel like, you know, they're going through the, the fact that they're just finally getting the clinicals mm-hmm. in or now becoming yeah. responsible for all this. Yeah. And it was just chaos. Yeah. That's what's mm-hmm. the sad part of it is because you couldn't really sit there by their side and mm-hmm. give them the guidance that they needed because mm-hmm. you, everybody was kind of fight or flight. At there's no point. time to learn. Yeah. There's no time because you yeah. were just like, oh my God, we, we yeah. got to get, there's a code going on. We all got to yeah. run over there now. Right? And yeah. but do this. So that's what I felt so bad is just that we had moments where we could just like sit down and say, how are you doing? Yeah. Are you okay? Do you have any questions? Can mm-hmm. I help you? Because you're like, at the same time, you're thinking the same thing about yourself. 
how are you? Are you still okay? Because we were just all just running around, like literally one from one thing to the next. And it was just chaos and just devastation one after the other. Yeah. We had a 30-year-old patient come in, no past medical history. Came from the ICU, was an ECMO, all of that stuff. Came to our floor, was stabilized. Went through a code and unsuccessful code. 32 years old. And one of the residents who I was alternating compressions with was the same age. Oh my God. After the code and we were wrapping up the body and we had to take out the intubation kits, right? Out of, through the mouth. The resident and I just hugged each other crying after that code. Um, and I felt so, nursing school and medical school don't prepare you for this. Kind of, <laughs> no preparation for these kind of stuff. And it was really dark times. And yes, we, we gained light, right? When the vaccines came in. And Despite all the misinformation that we battle daily about this amazing scientific advancement. But as a hospitalist, you are the first-hand witness. You are the chief. What did happen in the hospital when vaccines started rolling out? Was there a difference? Did it help? I think everybody would let out collective sigh of relief. Mm. That feeling that, oh my gosh, that maybe this might be the beginning of the end. Maybe the feeling of, I feel a little bit more secure. Just for me, from my standpoint, it was like every day was gowning up and you were scared to death, yeah. right? Right? You know, yeah. you go in there and you're like, did I, do I have it enough? Yeah. I mean, I literally have to like ask my coworker and be like, okay, after seven layers or whatever how many layers I have, <laughs> do I look like I'm missing anything? Because I'm about to go in here right now. Yeah. And it's just that this constant paranoia that you don't have enough. And then God knows we talk about what happened in the beginning where there's not enough, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And it was literal chaos, especially in the beginning part when we were all trying to figure out what was the guidance? What should we be wearing? Mm -hmm. Should you have a mask? Mm -hmm. Should it be N95? <laughs> I mean, it was just like the chaos. And then, no, maybe we don't have enough. Yeah. You yeah. guys need to like kind of just keep yeah. holding on to your mask and yeah. hope it doesn't fall apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember those days where we had to reuse the same N95 for days, yeah. right? Because we didn't have enough. Right. The whole nation was struggling with PPE right. supplies. And yes, protocols were changing. The guidelines were changing all the time. Oh, you don't need the mask. Oh, yes, you do need a mask now. Um, right. So I feel like it was, I mean, it's a novel virus. No one knew what to do. No one knew. And it was hard for us who were in the epicenter of it all, right? right? I know there was a time in California where we had the spike, like, early April, and it was so bad. And then I know California followed months after. How was that mental health-wise? Because I know for me, there were nights where I'm like, did I choose the right field? Is this oh, yeah. is it oh, okay absolutely. to quit while it's early on and find right. something else? How was that for you, Doug? No, it, it was. Now, we would collectively hear at the end of the shift, like we were about to see each other by the car, and we all looked at each other, and we're like, is it too late to like <laughs> turn it all in? Yeah. Yeah. Right, because yeah. it was such, it was so overwhelming. We were exhausted, we were all exhausted mentally, physically, emotionally, because we spent the day like crying and trying to keep it together. I mean, it was just so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm still scared to death because yeah. I don't know where we're, we are right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thought that we're gonna go possibly go through another surge or what all this because of what's happening yeah. right now yeah. is like. I don't know how much anyone has left to get. I know physically no nurses who've given notice and said, you know what? I'm done. Yeah. yeah. I'm done. Yeah. I feel like I, I have nothing more, much more to give. And it's been a year and a half. The shortage is real. Nurses, 
physicians, respiratory therapists. Thank God for respiratory therapists oh all, all throughout all of this. Right. I always say the unsung heroes of the pandemic, respiratory therapists, the hospital environmental team who cleaned yes. each room. Oh my gosh. Blood spider. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just tell you, they have to go in there no matter what the condition of that room looks like mm-hmm. after all the procedures mm-hmm. and the codes mm-hmm. and whatnot. These poor people go in there and they are cleaning mm-hmm. head to toe mm-hmm. that room and they are exposed. Yes. They are exposed. Yes. And absolutely. Yes. I was so happy because the day that I got my vaccination, mm-hmm. I was next to one of the members of the environmental team. And I was like saying, yeah. thank God yeah. you're yeah. getting your vaccine. Yeah. yeah. Despite all of the unclear aspects and the dark and the fogginess of this whole pandemic, I think it really showed how imperative teamwork was amidst all the interdisciplinary teams. And uh, I think all of us need therapy after we all no, we are. through. There we and, are. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, Doc, now that we've heard news of Delta variants, it's real, it's viable, it's tangible. New York cases mm-hmm. are rising again. How is mm-hmm. it looking like in California right now? It is. It's rising as well. So we have pockets. I know Southern California looks like it's even more more so. It's, it's kind of driving the numbers, but I'm actually seeing it too because I've got friends in different hospitals across the bay mm-hmm. and they're telling me yeah they're seeing pickup in in terms of the uptick of hospitalization and well you know what's even more sad is is the fact that there are some of them are a lot more children they're younger now yeah. and that's what's really disturbing and that's really sad and heartbreaking yeah. um let's just let it out to everybody covid19 <sighs> is mostly a preventable disease every hospitalization yeah. every yeah. death and that's what makes it heartbreaking yeah. because it is preventable yeah and Doc, having seen it all and through the waves last year and this year, vaccination, Delta variant, if there's one piece of, I wouldn't even call it advice, what is the one thing you would like to say to the world about everything that you have seen about COVID-19? First of all, that it's real. First of all, we are the same providers that you all run to when you have a heart attack or a stroke or a ruptured appendix. You trust us enough to come in for us to take care of you. We are the same people who are telling you COVID is real. We're the same people who are telling you that the vaccines are effective and that they work. They're not 100%, but they're the main thing and the reason they were created is to prevent severe disease, to prevent people from dying on a ventilator, people from dying, period. Help yourselves, protect yourselves, protect your families. There's so many people in the community who can't even get the vaccine. People who are clamoring to get it if they could. People around the world who are clamoring to get it, to have the kind of vaccines that we are so privileged to have, especially there's no reason we need to lose any more lives. That's the ultimate message. We don't have to have people dying anymore. It was beautiful, Doc. And just let it out to everyone. There's no 100% in medicine. That 95% efficacy, that effectiveness, that is what we need to safeguard, not just for ourselves, for our lovers, but for our community. Right. That's what we need. That is the crux of herd immunity, is that we get almost as much as we can protected. And I agree with you what you said, Doc, earlier, that I don't know if any healthcare workers who worked through the pandemic has enough, <laughs> has remaining strength to bypass another big lockdown, another big battle against this. 
And I actually wanted to segue into the what you advocate so much about, which I really appreciate, is the concept of self-care. It's very sad because I feel like nowadays people view self-care as a luxury when it should be a human right. <laughs> it's an innate thing that we should be always veering towards self-care. And even beyond before the pandemic, Doc, how did you decompress out of work? Medicine, being a physician is not an easy job. People's lives are on you. You make the executive decisions. You take the call on people's lives how did you decompress out of work i I had to right so coming home whether it was you know hiking biking Mm -hmm. dancing Mm -hmm. playing the piano anything that was just anything that brought me joy and happiness i ran to because it had to be it was important for me in terms of my relationship with other people it was important for my relationship with my patients Mm -hmm. and it was most importantly it was important for myself because talk about going to a dark place right because you just get to the point where it's always constantly dark if you didn't find those things that brought you joy and happiness i mean third mornings it's hard to wake up and get out of bed and so you know we have to do something to help ourselves because if we don't i mean we needed something that was going to be long lasting Mm-hmm. to be able to keep building our resilience and giving us motivation and inspiration to wake up and go back and do what we have to do. Beautiful dog. Every time I see a self-care post from you, I'm like, yes, 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 amen. Because I feel like the system has somewhat inculcated in our minds that we should just settle when we shouldn't. Yeah. Like mental health care is self-care. And I feel like also within the academic sphere, I think one of the things in self-care that people try to run after also is the concept of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Do you still experience that, Doc, after all the successes and achievements you have had in the field of medicine? Of course, right? We're human. I have to say, though, however, it does get better as we get older. As we become more experienced and we become more self-confident in ourselves, the imposter syndrome gets definitely lessens. I don't say it goes away completely because you could let me go back to a medical conference and be in front of all these amazing people. And I'm like, "Uh, am I supposed to be here? Who am I? Yeah, it creeps in. But then you second to remember, you know what? You, know, you remember, yeah, I did work hard for this. I earned it. I did educate myself for this. So I should be here, right? So I think it's kind of, these, there's this moment where you kind of turn it off and you're like, yeah, but you know what? It's okay. It's amazing, Doc. And you deserve all of it. You deserve it all, Doc. You are such a great person. You are, uh, I always tell my friends, oh, Dr. Stella, I'm going to have her on Saturday. She is like the most maternal and nurturing person ever. Thank you so much for always being so loving and supportive. And thank you so much for gracing me with your time and your presence tonight. I have been so excited for this. I can't believe it finally happened. I was so too. I was so too. I am so happy too. It's my pleasure. You know that I, it's been a joy. Just, I'm so happy that we connected. You're just like, so easy to talk to. I just feel like, you know, I, I feel like I've known you for years and we can just sit down and just like talk about anything so i love it so i think that's what the lockdowns have also been great it's like yes isolation stay at home but the connectivity through Mm -hmm. all of these people in the medical Mm -hmm. field through instagram through tiktok i just have to say that tiktok has been such a great vessel for people to be educated it's amazing it's so amazing what social media could do right dog 
Right. And actually, my last question for you is how do you balance that social media and medicine? Is is there a line of delineation for you or we just mesh it together and actually this is the new generation of medicine? You know, it's funny because I think it really is. Like, there's at some point that it just becomes part of you. It's funny. It's, I'll be resting. I'll, I'll be working out. And then an idea comes on. And you're like, well, I'm going to make a, a yeah. TikTok or a video yeah. about yeah. it. Yeah. Because it just the inspiration just comes on. Yeah. But it's things so it is powerful. 15 seconds to a minute and you can come <laughs> out here and just give such helpful information that it's digestible and for people to remember and yeah. it's entertaining. Yeah. It's powerful. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and your patient education goes beyond the, the hospital, beyond the four walls of the clinic. It's all over the world, which is such a great thing. Yeah. And one of those yeah. people that has been yeah. reached was me. So, Dr. Stella, thank you so much for your time. It has been such a pleasure. The honor is all mine. Thank you so oh, much. I'm stop, so humbled. Stop that. It's my honor as well. <laughs> no, no, no. If thank I could you. give you a hug, I would give you a hug. Virtual hug, Doc. When I visit California, I will let you know. Dr. Stella, have a good night there and stay safe always. Yes. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Stay safe, everybody. Bye. Okay, bye.